0: is the direction we're going. Today's message is going to be a little different. Um, it's going to be a little more, um, more Bible study. Was it, what does it say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean to me? So um, uh, there's, not, uh, one, there's not one specific uh, direction of a message with a final point that, I, that I've prepared. But the, the scripture is so rich. It's fun and exciting just to get into the word. As we noticed from last time, I gave you a little overview of introduction to the topic of what happened to Jesus after he was resurrected and all these different accounts. And we saw that in Luke, he devotes 53 verses to um, the account, and John devotes 56 verses to that. So in the coming weeks, we'll dive uh, into some of those. We saw that uh, if we go in order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Um, uh, if we recall the lessons from introduction to the, to the gospels I did, uh, last year, um, Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospels. That's his audience. It kind of ties the best from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In Matthew's gospel, we saw that just a reading of that, uh, Matthew is the only gospel that describes how the tomb was opened. Most of the other gospels just kind of talk about uh, start off with Mary, got up with some others and prepared spices and went to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. But Matthew describes how it was opened, the violent earthquake and the response of the guards and all that. Um, Matthew describes The first appearance of Jesus in uh, verse in chapter 28. Who did uh, Jesus first appear to? Any guesses? Matthew describes um, it was Mary, Mary, and who she was with. It says, suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. So Jesus' first appearance was to Mary. Matthew describes uh, the report of the guards. It's interesting of uh, that the guards went back to the chief priests and gave... Uh, The priest gave the soldiers money to tell a lie that the disciples had come in the night and stole the body. So that's where that came from. That was important to the Roman government. Um, You know, Jesus was uh, promising to usher in a new kingdom which was a threat supposedly to the Roman government. He was a a threat against the Roman government that the, the Jews, uh, this is how they got him arrested. And these were the charges against him. And also, the religious institution. Jesus promised what? In three days, something's going to happen. What did he say? He didn't so much say, I'm going to resurrect and come, you know, you're going to kill me and come back to life. He said, In three days, I will, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tear down the temple. Tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. He was talking about himself, but the if you were if you were the religious establishment, the government, you know, just almost like uh, the march on the Capitol. We're going to tear down this institution and rebuild it in three days. Well, what are you thinking? (laughs) You're thinking, bring out the guards. You know, this is what they thought was going to happen. So Jesus' body was was gone, the report, that in th- the third day, Jesus was not dead. They were like, whoa, we got to do something. Tell the guards, let's bribe the guards to say uh, that the disciples stole him. We read further on in uh, Matthew 28 that this is where the Great Commission uh, was described, Right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I had commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, There's that famous quote. So this is kind of an interesting, uh, uh, you know, it gives us a formula, so to speak, of, okay, what are we to do? All right? After Peter's that will come to in a few weeks Peter gives his first sermon and uh, after the sermon people in the crowd were cut to the heart and they said what are we to do so after Jesus' rex- resurrection as far as uh, instructions for the church what are we to do we can use this as a guide as well as far as the goals and missions of the church is Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So this is the first time Jesus says, uh, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So this is a kind of an interesting statement, given what is to come with Pentecost, is that Jesus kind of gives this uh, roller coaster ride of being with the disciples, ministering to them, loving them, becoming their family, and then he's crucified. Then on the third day, the stone is moved away, the fo- uh, the prophecy is fulfilled, and he's with them again. He walks on the road to Emmaus with uh, several disciples in Luke. And he kind of goes incognito, asking them what's going on. And then uh, he breaks bread with them. They finally recognize him. Their eyes were open. Jesus has risen. And then he disappears again. <laughs> he's there, and then he's gone. He appears to Mary, and then is gone again. I'll meet you in Galilee with the other disciples. And then he describes that He must uh, leave again. So there's this weird yo-yo ride of of Jesus is here, then he's not here. He's coming, he's resurrected, but yet he's going again. So this statement is an interesting backdrop. Even though Jesus is not here in bodily form, he is describing that surely I am with you always, And so, Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. You know, is Jesus here? According to this, Jesus is with us always. So, uh, verses, you know, I must leave and send the Holy Spirit. So, this is the great mystery of, is Jesus here? Is he here in bodily form? Well, Scripture says he's sitting at the right hand of God, but he's given us the Holy Spirit. So these were some of the takeaways. Uh, you can't really see that. You'll just have to trust me. <laughs> How will the kingdom work? How will the kingdom work is the first one. Versus a political king, Jesus describes, or this saga, this uh, this drama, describes the Bible using ordinary people to usher in the kingdom. Jesus' the first sermon was what? Sermon on the Mount, right? For the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So with Jesus' promise of ushering the kingdom, the Savior, you know, I always, you know, the political kings were imagining, the, you know, there's that statue of uh, of Jesus in Brazil, right? This huge statue of Jesus, Arms spread out over Brazil and the world—that famous one. Um, you would figure you could understand how the Savior would be resurrected and return on a white horse and da da da, you know, you know, triumphs and glory and you know, girded by angels on left and right to the to the Roman guards who crucified him and said, yeah, "I told you so." You would figure that's how he would come. But how does Jesus' new kingdom, the new kingdom, come? He comes first to, again, the marginalized people. His first appearance is to Mary. The fishermen, his disciples, Galileans, fishermen, unlearned people at Pentecost, that we'll read later. They started preaching Telling people about the coming kingdom, the resurrected Jesus. What's the first thing they said to them? Uh, These guys are drunk. (laughs) Aren't these Galileans? Unlearned people. So that's the first takeaway is God uses, ushers in the kingdom with ordinary people. Peter becomes primary, as we'll see. Who is Peter Peter famously denied Jesus uh, three times. In fact, Jesus predicted his failure, right? How would you like to be that disciple? J- Jesus predicting that you're going to fail. Not once, not twice, but three times. So this is how the kingdom uh, is Ushered in through ordinary people like you and I, and it's not uh, the kingdom is not made of political forces, uh, a government, a movement, a person, a church, but it's Jesus's great commission is you go. This is how the kingdom is built. You go. You and I go and baptize all nations, teaching them, and I will be with you always. So that's the key there, is that I've said this before, the kingdom of God is not, you know, a new Jerusalem, it is not a government, it is not a new political force, Uh, but God's kingdom is established in each of our individual hearts. But the key here is that Jesus will infuse us with power. This is how the kingdom is uh, ushered in. Jesus will infuse us with power. I was thinking about this. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever felt this way. Jokingly, probably not, right? That we've ever felt powerless in our spiritual lives have we any of us ever felt mediocre in our spiritual lives um if you've been a christian any number of years you know it's kind of you know like sometimes like a roller coaster sometimes there's peaks and valleys or mountaintop experiences right and sometimes there's just the mundaneness of our christian life right uh, am i wrong um not all of us uh, are going from peak to peak to peak like uh, our f- our friends on Facebook who only post their peak moments in life. Right? It's kind of the same experience, um, and it's easy to get depressed uh, where we see that oh, everybody else is going to Alaska and eating <laughs> whatever creme brulee, <laughs> right? Everybody, everybody else um is going out every night of the week and eating boba and uh whatever right not everybody does that every night of the week but that's how we see that and sometimes in the christian life as well sometimes you get that you know during covid you watch these uh you know people jumping on stage and it's like a it's like a party every night at church right well is that your my experience not all the time, right? Rarely, you know, sometimes, occasionally, we go to a Christian concert and, and, uh, and things are like that. But I think this feeling, I was thinking about this, and the feeling of being powerless is actually good. It's actually good. sometimes depressing, yes, (laughs) sometimes depressing when things are just going ho-hum in our Christian life, but it's actually good, and I tell you why, because it leads us to humility, all right? It needs us to humility, and just like the disciples, Jesus needed disciples, you and I, workers, okay, look at this, with empty hands. Jesus needs people, individuals with empty hands to be, em- to what? To be empowered with God's power, not our power, all right? And I think that's what happens when we only use our power, our strength, our humanity, our sense of whatever, right, wrong power and service, we get ho-humness, <laughs> Right? The Apostle Paul said what? What I don't want to do, I end up doing. What I I want to do, I don't do. But what I don't want to do, I end up doing. There's this struggle in our humanness. And if we rely on that humanness, there's this ceiling, right? They talk about a glass ceiling, right? The whatever ceiling that keeps us from advancement. There's a moral ceiling as well. Right? If we rely on our own strength. And I think that's that tension, that, that sense of angst, that, that, that need for needing more than just us. God needs empty hands. It's very much like the 12-step program that we went over uh, not too long ago. The first three steps is to admit that we're powerless over our sin nature. That's step one. Step two is to come to believe. Believe in God's power can give us more. God wants to empower us more than just ourselves. That's step two. Step three is to decide. Decide to give our life over to God. God's will and power. To go beyond uh, mediocrity. To, uh, very much like the Apostle Paul what I want to do, I don't do, all right? Absorbing that. It's very much like trying to do the Christian life without the power of God's Spirit. And then finally, God showed them how he would be with them always. Uh, not... Be, not uh, Jesus was resurrected... He was not bound by space. He was instantly in one place and then the other. You know, I was, uh, uh, I read some nice commentary on this. I always thought, I thought it was curious why he showed himself to Mary and then poof, disappeared. Showed himself to the other disciples on the road to Emmaus, revealed himself, their eyes were open, and then poof, he disappears. <laughs> it's a weird roller coaster, but um, I read some interesting commentary that Jesus showed that who he was like in his resurrected form. It says specifically, the doors to the upper room were locked, right? Because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Nobody could get in. If Jesus was just human, (laughs) he'd have to knock, (laughs) right? Literally, I stand at the door outside you know, ring, ding, ding, ding. you know, can I come in? No, it says specifically, the doors were locked and he appeared in them. So it tells us a little bit about his resurrected body and what we're going to be like as well in the life to come. So that's kind of exciting to go along that path of, uh, you know, he was both human, resurrected, his glorified body, not bound by time nor space. It was very interesting, fascinating. Um, When he's with the upper room, he asks them, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) Very interesting, right? So those of you that are foodies, that love to eat, um, have that joy of cooking, uh, apparently we'll be able to... uh, uh, I don't know if we need food, but... Jesus was, ate food. He was apparently hungry and uh, enjoyed uh, broiled fish or something like that, uh, it says later on. Okay, moving on to Mark for going in order. those were a few insights from Matthew. Mark highlights the redemption of Peter. Like I said earlier, Jesus predicted uh, Peter's failure. Um, yeah, I wrote up uh, uh, social media and, and Facebook. Um, for anybody that, that's a perfectionist, um, a lot of people uh, don't, sh- don't put themselves out there for fear of failure, right? Nobody, I don't, nobody likes to fail, a lot of people don't try for lack of not having to fail. What's that uh, famous quote, uh, right? If you, don't, uh, if you don't try, you'll, you'll never fail. You never, never have to risk failing. But here, uh, it's an interesting story that Jesus predicted Peter's failures. And... It's something that uh, we can get over, is that we are going to fail. And these are the very people that Jesus used to build his kingdom. And Peter is named prominently in the coming verses, as we'll see uh, in Mark and Luke and John. Peter is the one... Who d- denied Jesus three times? Jesus predicted that. So we hear, see here um, in Mark. Mark is the shortest of the accounts. Just in eight verses, it describes the uh, what happened after Jesus was resurrected. So, when in verse sixteen, let's see, Mark sixteen, Mark sixteen. It says, uh, Mary Magdalene the mo- and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices. And they saw that the stone had been rolled away. They saw a young man dressed in white, in a white robe, sitting at the right side, and said, He is risen. He is not here. Then he instructed them, but go and tell his disciples what happened. And Peter. Interesting, right? Interesting that the angel singled out Peter from being the three to, thrice three-time denier, the predicted failure of Peter, the disciple who f- was going to deny Jesus, the angel singles out Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is, that Jesus is going ahead of you to get into Galilee, and you will see him just as he told you. And then after this, Mary and the other Marys run back to the upper room where the disciples are. They tell him all that happened. And in some of the other accounts, many didn't believe what they were saying because it sounded like nonsense, right? But what happened next? Peter gets up and runs to the tomb. Versus many who stayed, they were still afraid of the Jewish authorities, and many who are doubting. <clears throat> Peter hears the news, gets up and runs. This account is described by Mark, it's described by Luke, and it's also described by John, that Peter is singled out. And we'll close that story when we get to John. John. Well, let's since I'm on that, let's let's move to John. John describes this scene. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw this the stone that was removed. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, but he adds and the one and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. You've heard that term, right? The disciple who Jesus' love, do you know who that is? That would be John, right? So this is in the book of John, John's gospel. So he's writing, strangely, kind of in the third person. He's describing the same scene. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. He's talking about himself. And he writes, the one who Jesus loved. I just thought I'd put that in there. He thought it was important to put in there, right? So he describes that, and they said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. I don't know what they've put, uh, where have they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples start, started to run for the tomb. So John, in his, in his account, um, thought it important to place himself running along with Peter and also that's the one, he's the disciple who Jesus loves. So it's kind of an interesting account, is that they have a foot race to the tomb, and John makes it a point to say what? The other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, got there first. <laughs> why did he, why did he, why did he, uh, thought, think that was important? I don't know. Um. But he says, he goes on to say, he reaches the tomb first, but he, defers, but he deferred to Peter. When he got to the tomb, he did not go in. And then he says, uh, that, uh, Peter finally came and went straight in and, and saw that uh, Jesus was not there and saw the uh, burial linens. So, it's interesting. I want to make, probably close on this point here. John, I thought it was so weird, (coughs) strange. You know, why did John make it a point to say, uh, Peter went to the tomb, and another disciple went to the tomb, the one that Jesus loved, who, by the way, was me. (laughs) Why did he say that? Um, obviously uh, important for him to write that down. The others didn't think it was all that important. They didn't record that at all. But I was thinking about John. I did a little study on John. And uh, again, I encourage you to read the accounts, uh, read some commentaries. Um, And this is something that you could easily do. And this is what I did. And it makes sense to me that John would record this, rather than be such a weird oddity, is that I believe John was transformed. So what I did was I just queried the word love in the Bible program. They used to call it a concordance, a big a big uh, Google search, uh, it used to be called a, concordance, as you look up a word, and then it would tell you all the verses where that that word is used. Now you just type it in, and you put, you know, search uh, in, 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 uh, in Bible Gateway, any Bible program. So I put the word love in, and it is used 261 times in the New Testament. And then it kind of breaks down. In Matthew, in the Gospels, it's, the word love is used 15 times. In Mark, it's used 7. In Luke, it's used 14. In the book of John, it's used 39 times. 39 times. And in 1 John, it's used, the word love is used 27 times. I always thought the, the great... Romanticist talking about love was who? 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter was written by the Apostle Paul, right? But here John um, many more times speaks about, uses the word love. Then I, then I also queried love is, kind of like a defining word, like love is, and look how many times it, it was used. John, again, was the winner again. It's used 74 times in the New Testament, this phrase, love is, blah, blah, blah. It's used 74 times in the New Testament, 11 times in the Gospel of John, and 19 times in 1 John. It's almost like the Apostle John had a necklace or a wristband that has an inscription that says, you are loved by me, Jesus. You know, remember when we were little kids, right? When we had little puppy love. <laughs> uh, uh, we give each other lockets and things like that with little inscriptions, right? It's almost as as if uh, the Apostle John had one of these inscribed in his heart, a wristband in his heart. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you... Uh, uh, read that book or know what the five love love languages are? Yeah, have you guys heard of that? Raise your hand if you have. One. Two, three. Okay. You've heard of it. Okay, all right.. Water. do you guys know what the five love languages are? Take a guess. Talk. Like, like verbally. Verbally. Acts acts of service—they call it right. Uh huh. That's one levers. All right. So this uh, Christian, what is he? Psychologist is it? Gary Chapman is a Christian psychologist who wrote this book. You can look it up online. Right five love languages, five love languages. Um, He describes that uh, we uh, receive and express love in different ways. We're kind of wired in different ways where acts of service might mean uh, more to you than, than something else, right? Acts of service versus words of affirmation, right? You know, one person might say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. Well, the other person might think, Well, show me, (laughs) show me is that congruent with uh, showing me how. Acts of service, words of affirmation. Another one is receiving, giving and receiving gifts. All right. You know, gift giving, uh, tokens, uh, flowers, uh, receiving gifts. Another one is quality time, just spending time with each other. You don't have to do anything for, for me. Uh, you don't have to say the words, but just spending time together, right? Um, I think uh, definitely, I think quality time is one of mine. Yeah. I like, I'm, I'm a social being, I like quality time. The other one is physical touch, okay? Pat on the back, a hug. You know, the Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. You know, we don't do that anymore. Definitely dur- not during COVID. Huh? <laughs> we, we didn't do that. You know, we, I still fist bump people. You know, people come with their hand, like this big hand of germs coming at you. I'm like, all right, dude, good to see ya. <laughs> you. Know, I, I still offer the fist bump. <laughs> so what do you think the Apostle John's love language was? Huh? Probably words of affirmation. He remembered, Jesus loves me. Right? I am loved. That was his thing. He just knew, he knew it. Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, ran to the tomb. That was him. Obviously, Uh, Jesus spoke many languages. What do you think the love language of of the Apostle James was? The book of James. Kathy says, acts of service. I think so too. What's James' famous quote, right? Show me your faith and I'll show you my works, right? I'll show you love in action, right? And for the resurrection, Jesus giving Himself. The when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, where He preached that lesson to them, of "I serve you. Now I want you to serve others." That that probably blew uh, James' mind right there, right? That, That image was probably burned in James' mind. Uh, Show me your faith, and I'll show you my works. So I thought this was interesting, uh, taking a look at John. So this is simple Bible study. You know, what does it say? Um, These these odd uh, little, you know, mentions of the Apostle John recording... Uh, the other disciple, along with Peter, ran to the tomb, the one who Jesus loved. <laughs> then it finally clicked, wait, he's writing this. <laughs> he's talking about himself in the third person and then mentioning uh, he's the one, he's the one that Jesus loved. So I thought that was the significance of why, why it's there, is that, uh, um, it highlights what Jesus's uh, love for us the love for John really meant um, lastly in John uh, 25 we'll close on this note just kind of wrap up his his account he uh, the disciple the whoops. He, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who got there first, by the way, looked at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. He describes, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Finally, the other disciple, he writes, who had reached the tomb first. <laughs> he, always, <laughs> he says that several times. It must mean something. Uh, that I got there first, not just that.. <laughs> Peter, I got there first. It must be something more than that. Um, he, then he finally went inside, and then significantly, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. And it doesn't really record that Peter believed. He just he ran first, and he saw. And it doesn't really say anything. He didn't see Jesus. He just saw that the tomb was empty. But here, John records that he saw that the tomb was empty. He saw the linens, and he saw and he believed. He believed what? That Jesus did what he said he was going to do, that the miracle had happened, that he was not just a prophet, but he was God himself, and he was indeed going to usher in the kingdom, and he was resurrected. He saw and believed. And it's interesting, later on, when Jesus appeared to the 1211 in the upper room, uh, John records this quote from Jesus uh, after Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see the wounds in your hand and put my hand in your side. And Jesus says to Thomas, what? What? You, ha- you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. So those, those who had faith in all the things uh, Jesus taught before, the meaning, and then the resurrection. So this here, John, uh, I think, gives a significance of this little statement. He saw and believed. So... He he didn't see Jesus, he didn't have to see that miracle, but he saw the empty tomb, and his heart believed. So he describes his faith, uh, the blessing um, that came through believing. All right. Okay, so uh, this is bringing us um, up to Jesus, again, mentioning of... He's cut, he was rose again, he's here, and then he's gone. Then he's going to describe that he's going to have to leave again. Um, I'll just bring this quote. Uh, I'll have to let you know the reference. But after Jesus appears to Mary and worships him, Jesus says to Mary... Um. don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So there's this uh, interesting drama here, and it sets up uh, our topic for next week that Jesus described, you know, baptize them in the name of the Father. People knew who that was in the Old Testament. Of the Son, that's me, all right, And the Holy Spirit and the introduction and everything pointing to Jesus saying, wait, I will wait for the helper uh, that's going to give you power from on high, and that's the third person of the Trinity that we need to spend some time uh, discussing, right? We need to spend some time discussing that. Uh, God, we just thank you for today. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. God, we uh, praise you that we can worship you uh, from this vantage point in history, that we can understand the uh, prophecies of the Old Testament that describe uh, you, God, a holy God coming to earth and revealing yourself to the people of Israel, and showing them something very important, and that is you are a holy, holy God, and we are your creation. You described, God, that you wanted your people to be holy just as you are, perfect as you are. And it highlighted, God, through the Ten Commandments and the law, that none of us could fulfill that law. And you provided that uh, high view of morality that uh, through the person of Jesus, solve that problem for each of us and uh, your desires that all people should come to know you and be reconciled to you. So we thank you for that uh, gift and uh, meaning of Jesus' sacrifice who suffered and died and uh, and, uh, conquered Uh, the consequences of sin and death itself so that uh, uh, we your children your sons and daughters would not have to uh, suffer the eternal consequences of sin and separation uh, uh, from you but to be reconciled uh, with you and to inherit uh, everlasting life that we too will have a body We'll have a resurrected body, just like Jesus. If we share in his death, you say, uh, the Apostle Paul says, we will also share in your life as well. So we thank you for that as we gather together to learn until we meet again. In your son's name we pray, amen.